Hi there, I'm John Coleman, and welcome to Inside Intercom. In this episode, I chat with Jared Spool. He's the founder of User Interface Engineering and co-founder of the Center Center Design School. Jared catches us up on everything he's been up to since he spoke with our own Des trainer on this very podcast back in 2016. Jared's also been at the forefront of design and usability for decades, so it was great to have him back on the show. We covered a lot of fascinating ideas, from building the next generation of designers to proving the value of UX in an organization. Jared also showed us why design is a team sport and how access to student financing can improve diversity and inclusion in our industry. He also shared some amazing insights about how today's UX can inform the technology of tomorrow. If you enjoy my chat with Jared, make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes by subscribing at iTunes, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Jared, we're delighted to have you return as a guest with us here on Inside Intercom. Now, the last time you spoke with us, you talked with Des Trainer, and you had just launched Center Center. For anyone who missed that episode, can you remind us of what Center Center does? Uh, yes, yeah, Center Center is a school with the mission of creating uh, industry-ready UX designers. Excellent. And tell us a bit more about what industry-ready means. Uh, in its simplest form, industry-ready is basically just being able to show up on day one and be able to contribute to the team from that moment on. Uh, we have heard so many stories from hiring managers about graduates out of school not being prepared to work in the workplace. Uh, so it's the hard skills of, of design, but it's also the what people refer to as soft skills, but we don't refer to them that anymore because they're actually really hard. Mm, um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's the interpersonal skills or what we refer to these days as power skills that are needed to do the job. Right. Uh, just simple things like knowing how to communicate through email or facilitate a meeting or, uh, present your work. These are things that are missed in a lot of programs and, and the way our program is structured, the students get a lot of practice at it. And as a result, they, they, School and work feel very familiar to them because the way we've modeled the school is is like a work environment more than like a conventional university setting. So as a result, uh, the students don't feel out of place when they get to the workplace. It feels like exactly what they've been doing for the last two years. That is a fascinating approach. I love that framing of power skills. Is This is really how the business gets done. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it'd be nice if designers spent 99% of their time designing, but you know, most of your time is, is spent working with other people and, and collaborating and not putting pixels into a, into a document or, you know, drawing lines on a wireframe or walking through all the possible color palettes you can use type choices. All of those things are, are important. But that's not what the bulk of design work is today. The bulk of design work is contributing on a team where lots of people are doing lots of things and knowing how to jump in and, and make sure that you're adding value with, with everything that you do. And this sounds like something that most traditional uh, design courses seem to leave out or take for granted. 
universities follow the same model today that they followed in in the, the 1400s when St. Ignatius created the first college. And uh, the, you know, that school was created to teach people to teach. You know, the whole idea was that there weren't enough people teaching the word of God. So we create more teachers and we go from there. And so modern university is not vocational. Modern university is academic. And there's nothing wrong with academics. Academics has its place. But we shouldn't confuse it with vocational work. And then we shouldn't be disappointed when people coming out of an academic environment don't have vocational skills. And vocational skills are not just theory. Uh, vocational skills are, are actually practice. They're being able to do the work on a regular basis. And that, that's the key thing. Yeah, so it sounds like this is deeply rooted in application and developing practical skills and experience. Fantastic. So now that we're all caught up then, tell us how things have progressed over the last three years. We have graduated our first cohort. They graduated last October, and they were very much coming in cold. Uh, They had very little design experience when they came in. What we've done is, is we've taken these students who knew nothing, and we gave them all this background and then we set them on projects and they worked on a project uh, for a defense contractor and they worked on a project for a university and they did a project that involved the city of Chattanooga, a future planning project. And as a result, they were able to harness all these skills and they all graduated, uh, which is unusual in adult education. It's, it's a hundred percent graduation rate is, is, virtually unheard of, but they all did. And then they all went off and got really great jobs within six weeks of graduating, really good UX jobs. Yeah. We so, had, uh, tell us a bit more about that, because I, I understand you've done some research on where all of your alumni are at now. What, what have you found? <laughs> yeah, they're all doing fantastic. They're, they're, uh, we, we stay in touch. They keep us informed. The nice thing about this first cohort was that it wasn't a big group. There were only six of them, but they were really like the perfect students for what we were trying to do because this was somewhat of a pilot. And we were, we were adjusting the curriculum and other things as we were learning from them, we very much bonded with them. And so, so they stay in touch and, and we hear a lot about them. One of the things that's, we had estimated when we first put on our proposal to the state of Tennessee to get our authorization, we had to estimate what we thought salaries would be. And we, we picked what, based on industry standards, we picked for a junior designer going into the workplace, a starting salary of 66000 US dollars a year. And that seems reasonable for someone right out of school. Our average salary for the students is, came in at 86000 So we're, we're $20,000 above where we, we aimed. And so we have 100% graduation, 100% placement, and $20,000 higher than our, our target for uh, this. Part of me wants to just stop now because there's, we'll never get this good again. I mean, it's, it's just, there are no better stats than this. Just, this is, this is going to be our, our, our shining point. You know, hopefully we can keep it up for a while. Yeah, that's but, fascinating. Uh, so since we're talking about financials, tell us a bit about your approach to student financing because I understand this is really different than a traditional university. Uh, Can you tell us how this works? Yeah, so one of the things that we've learned, so 
you learn a lot of things when you start a school. I'm going to tell you that right off the bat. And one <laughs> of the things that we learned was that you cannot, in the U.S., we have this notion of, of federally backed student loans. And federally backed student loans is basically you, you can get a loan from a bank, but the, the federal government guarantees it. If you default, the federal government will pay it off. The bank can't lose. So we had to come up with a, with a plan to get students financing that didn't involve putting them at a lot of risk. And so we created our own student financing system. And the way we did it was through donations because we knew that there was a lot of support in the industry for people to get into design, uh, particularly around inclusivity and working with folks who wouldn't normally be able to get to a program like this. And so we create a program that allows that to happen. And, and we're very proud of it. I mean, our first cohort, half the cohort was women. Uh, all of them were women of color. We were able to, to succeed at having a very diverse, inclusive group in the first cohort. The applicants for our second cohort are fantastic. They come from all different backgrounds. That's brilliant. I was just going to say, it sounds like they're paying it forward. I love that. Yeah. So since you mentioned diversity and inclusion, it sounds like you think that's really important for good design. I'm curious if that's part of the curriculum of the school and how you focus on that. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, we build it into every course. So we took this, this was originally, we thought about this around accessibility, but we've expanded it since then. And we don't have a course on accessibility. And uh, initially people sort of look at us sort of cross-eyed when, when they, when they figure this out, that we, there is nothing, if you look at our course list, there's nothing on there about accessibility. And that's because we decided early on that we did not want to have accessibility be something that you, that we didn't want to put in the mindset of the students that accessibility was this thing you come to later, you know, you work on your design and then you make it accessible. It's sort of this afterthought of work. And instead throughout every course, we talk about accessibility. So when you're doing your user research, we talk about, well, how are you going to recruit accessible participants? And we also talk about what happens if the observers in the room need accessibility efforts and the team members that you're working with, how do you make sure that your research results are accessible in their own right? Mm. And so we've, we've been expanding that from accessibility into inclusion and diversity and, and basically saying, okay, how do we make sure we have all the different voices, all the different representation? And we, you know, we started with accessibility and said, okay, accessibility is not just people who are blind, people who are deaf, but it's also people who have trouble accessing something because maybe they have brain trauma, maybe they are low literacy, maybe they come from an economic background and they don't understand computer technology. Absolutely. And then, and then once you go there, you get into this notion of inclusiveness that talks about where all these experiences are key. And, you know, we see this in the work today where, you know, you know, the canonical examples are people putting out health applications that don't take into account that women's health is different than men's health, and therefore they don't talk about menstrual cycles or other activities that, that are usually specifically to women. You don't have things where it's possible for a trans man to make an appointment at a women's clinic because uh, they're seen as, as 
uh, he, him, therefore they're male, and therefore why would they need to have uh, cervical smears or something like that? And, and you know, you have binary gender declarations in your code. Are you a male? Are you a female? Yep. And people are not binary. But then it, it gets into other things like, do we understand what happens when someone gets charged a fee they weren't expecting and every penny in their life is budgeted and they can't deal with a $40 fee that is a surprise in their budget. They, you know, that means someone's going to go without a meal that month. And unless you've sort of been there, you don't really understand what that place is like. And so we're able to bring in students from places where, you know, we have some applicants who have lived out of their car and eaten ramen for years on end or could not transfer from the community college they were in to the community college they wanted to go to because it had a better program for what they wanted to study because they needed a car to do that and they could not afford a car at that moment. You know, until you're in that situation, you don't really understand what it's like to be there. Absolutely. This is uh, something that we don't talk about enough in the industry. And I love how you're, first of all, expanding the people who are doing the work by allowing them, giving them access to your school, um, but also preparing them for considering exactly these kinds of problems in their own work. Right, right. I mean, you need that person in the meeting to sit up and say, well, wait a second, we've left something out, or we're not considering the thing, or we have taken a very privileged perspective on this problem, and we need to think of this from a less privileged point of view. And it's it's really hard to put yourself in that situation unless you've been there. Exactly. And And to even know that that situation exists, because if you live in a community where everybody's just like you and everybody has the same privileges you have, why would you think to consider people without those privileges? Because we tend to design from our own perspectives, right? Exactly. Exactly. So so you don't even know to do the research. You don't even know to have the empathy for the folks. And so that's where we come from. That's our that's our take. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. 
the first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So in terms of uh, thinking about how designers can expand and change the organizations they're in, you've written a lot about empowering and educating design leaders so that they can uh, sell the value of design and the impact of design to their leadership and to companies. What are some of the strategies you'd recommend to design leaders to show how design makes the organization stronger or more effective? That's a great question. The The place I, I almost always start is looking at where it's hurting the organization right now, mm. right? Where is a lack of good design causing the organization to pr- deliver products and services that are far less than they could be? An example is whenever you have some sort of experience problem, UX problem, it causes frustration. Mm-hmm. And whenever you have that frustration, you, you, something in the organization is, feels that pain, right? You get right. support calls you didn't want to get, you lose sales you didn't want to lose, you have employees not being as productive, you have developers working on features that nobody uses. Somewhere there's, there's a financial burden that the organization feels because they have created something that was frustrating. So oftentimes, if you chase the frustration, you can get to something which you can actually put a monetary value on. And once you can put a monetary value on, you can get people's attention who normally wouldn't pay attention to design things. Because the, the monetary value is, is speaking the language that they're focused on. And once we can speak that language, we can then say, well, you know, there's a way we could, we could reverse this. We could actually make this a monetary benefit, not a monetary cost. And I have some tools to do that. And if the numbers are big enough, folks will pay attention. And if an organization has been ignoring design, chances are the numbers are pretty big. That's right. And you've said that money is the language that executives bring to the table. So I'm I'm curious, can you tell us a bit about how designers and design leaders should understand and communicate the ROI of design? Well, the first thing is to to not think of it as ROI of design, because I think that that's an abstract notion. Mm. Right now, decisions are being made and the decisions are resulting in frustrating outcomes. And if we make different decisions, we can make them not be frustrating. If we can prove that those frustrating outcomes have a monetary cost on the organization, then we can make decisions that don't have that monetary cost and potentially actually produce a monetary gain for the organization. Mm -hmm. So once you go there, the return on investment question becomes very simple right? I mean, it's like, why would we spend money when we could be making money? Let's talk about that. And then it's just a matter of talking about different ways you can make money. If you try and and go down the road of ROI that gets you into looking at competitors and figuring out in the industry who has made money when they've invested in design, those questions are academic at best and and often very futile. And any executive that's any good knows that you're just making arguments based on 
cherry-picked findings. And you're not really talking to the heart of the problems that are close to them. Mm. But if you can talk about how there's an opportunity to change the way income or costs are expended in the organization, then talk about that. And usually that is a discussion that very often does not require that you state a return on investment. Instead, what you're saying is, hey, we seem to be spending a lot of money on people calling support. And if we fix this problem, we can make those support calls go away. And therefore, we could use that money for something else. This is not a hard conversation to have once you know what we're spending support on and how fixing it would solve it. That's and that's where we should focus the effort. Absolutely. So that's fantastic. Let's jump in a bit to the future of UX. So in the past, you've written about how Apple created a series of experience visions in 1997 that helped them predict the future of their products. Can you tell us more about how this worked and uh, and what they learned from it? Yeah, so uh, you can see one of them. Uh, if you Google the phrase knowledge navigator in the YouTube, there are people who have uploaded copies of the video. It's a crappy video because it was originally shot on a low resolution VHS. And it reminds us that, that you know, those days are gone. And, and people are often uploading copies of copies of copies because as far as I know, the original masters are long since lost. Oh, okay. But this was a project run by Hugh Dubberley at when he was at Apple. And uh, he and his team uh, in 1987 set out to, to create a bunch of videos based on some stories that they'd created and worked on internally of what the experience of the user would be like 23 years in the future. And what's mm. fascinating about these videos is they don't, they're not a demo of a product. They're a person living their life, doing their job for four minutes, where you get to see what it's like to use technology. And the Knowledge Navigator one is particularly fascinating. That's the one that caught everybody's imagination. Because, you know, back in 1987, 1987 was, was an interesting year. It was five years after the PC was announced that in 1982, the IBM PC came out. It was three years after the Macintosh came out, which introduced GUIs to the world. Mm -hmm. So people having computers on their desk was a brand new thing in 1987 still, right, compared to today, yeah. where it seems very commonplace. And these, these computers that were on their desk were these big, massive boxes that took up a good chunk of your desk. They made a lot of noise. They were really slow. I mean, you would boot them up and you'd go get a cup of coffee. You'd brew the coffee. You'd come back and it was still booting. And <laughs> they had no connectivity to the outside world because, you know, the Internet didn't come along until 1993. Most of them were still character-based because... Uh, while the Macintosh came out in 84, Windows 3.1, which was the first version of Windows that most people ended up using, didn't come out till 1991. So there was, it was a very crude world. And Apple comes out with this little thing that is this desktop flat panel device that you talk to to work with and you touch it to interact with it and it somehow collects data from all over the world and integrates it into one source and it's got video conferencing 
with a seamless video conferencing built in and you're running multiple apps at the same time. And in 1987, that was just science fiction, right? No, <laughs> no, there was no technology that could do any of that. That's right. And people just looked at it and said, I want this. In fact, Apple ended up showing the Knowledge Navigator video at their annual shareholders meeting and the next day, they got a purchase order for one of these things, even though they said, <laughs> this is not going to ship for 23 years. They didn't do it. But then they now, used this to inform their product roadmap. Is that right? Yeah. So every decision after that, people got to ask a question, right? So normally when you're faced with a bunch of design options, you have a couple questions that you lean on, like which thing will be fastest to deliver or which thing will be cheapest to manufacture or which thing will be easiest to build. And we use those types of questions to help guide us to make choices. But Apple's Knowledge Navigator video gave them another question. And that question was, well, which of these design options takes a baby step towards the Knowledge Navigator? So when they were working on the PowerBooks, the Newtons, uh, the iPods, all of these things that led up to the iPhone and the iPad, every single one of those was faced with decisions and, and they would ask the question, well, which one of these gets us closest to the knowledge navigator? And that question, which unlike the other questions, puts the user at the center of the equation right? Because mm -hmm. remember, the Knowledge Navigator didn't exist as a set of specifications. The Knowledge Navigator existed as an experience that a user had doing this work. And so everything they knew about it was about a better user experience. And that's what they were asking. Which of these produces a better user experience? But it's a very specific user experience. It's one that everybody's already bought into. And so you don't argue over whether, well, my user experience is better than yours. It's like either we believe in the knowledge navigator or we don't. And if we all say, yeah, no, the knowledge navigator is what we wanted, then we can use this question. And so we've been helping teams create experience visions. And this is, it's a fantastic tool because it completely changes the decision-making process. And an experience vision basically answers a question, what will the experience of using our product or service be like some number of years in the future? And you want it to be far enough out that whatever the legacy things that are holding you back are doable, right? Mm, you know, okay. we can get past that. Yeah, we can get the mainframes to talk to each other, even though we've never done that in 25 years. But we can do it in the next, you know, in the next five years. Why not? We could, we can completely redo the whole tech stack in five years. Why not? So practically speaking, then, how would a design team know when to create an experience vision, and and what should they do to get started? Well, they should create one as soon as possible, mm. but they may be prevented from creating one because they don't know enough about the current experience. One of the advantages that Apple had with the Knowledge Navigator was that everybody who saw that video knew how crappy the current experience of using technology was. Mm. So it immediately distinguished itself because, you know, the user comes in the room, they, they open this thing up and bing, it's, it's on and running and it's telling them their calendar for the day and they then realize they have an upcoming important appointment and they have to prepare for it and they start to look through things that feels like an internet, but it was still five years before the internet was invented. <laughs> and, you know, so they're, they're doing all these things that are so much so different than 
the way users were doing them at that time, uh, that they jumped out of it. And one of the problems we have in a lot of teams today is that most organizations, the people who are making these decisions, often do not know what the user's current experiences are. They are so separated from those experiences that they, that they're so divorced from it that they don't, they don't have any way to empathize with those people. Wow. So the first thing you need to do is you need to have a lot of exposure to the current experience and you need to get all the people who are going to be supportive and make the decisions be making that, you know, which one gets us closer to the experience vision question. You need all those people to know what the current experience is like so that when they see the, the experience vision, they have a, a real understanding of how this is going to be an improvement over what users have today. Ah, so it's like an exercise in immersion and you use that to build alignment across your, your team or your company. Bingo. Yes, that's exactly it. Nice. Wow. It took you much shorter to say that. <laughs> uh, content design. That's how, that's how we roll. Yes. Okay. Yeah. See, this is why you are the content guy. <laughs> so Jared, uh, I know we're running short on time. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, we usually ask people what designers they look up to or aspire to, but I know you're not keen on the sort of this notion of genius or rock star designers. So I'm curious if you could tell us why, in your experience, uh, UX leaders show up in, in across the board in all walks of life. Yeah, I mean, I get the question, right? Who are your influences? What are you there for? But, but I'm influenced every day by the people around me. And the, the thing is, is that design is a team sport. And when we, when we take some individual and we say, oh, this is the designer that I, I believe in, then we're basically saying that nobody else on that team was, you know, an equal contributor to that. And, you know, we were just talking about Apple and the knowledge navigator, mm -hmm. right? And, yep. and the knowledge navigator led to the iPad and the iPad is definitely, I mean, if you compare the knowledge navigator and the iPad side by side, it's it, that you can see the influence right there, but everybody gives the credit to the iPad to Steve jobs. You know, he created the iPhone, he created the iPad and certainly he was the front man for Apple during that period. And he was definitely creating a leadership and a vision and people, people loved working for him for sure because of that. But uh, to say Steve jobs was the leader there really doesn't give credit to the amazing talent inside Apple. And then all the people who've created the applications that have made the iPad useful today, that it really doesn't do service to say, well, Steve jobs. And the, here's the thing. Steve Jobs did not work at Apple in 1987 when Hugh Doberly and his team built the Knowledge Navigator video. That's right. That's right. He was in you know, he he didn't show up for for another four years, mm -hmm. and so he took the video and he said, "I love this. Let's let's make this the vision." And then under his leadership, everybody was like, "Okay, well, this is what we're doing," and everybody got behind it. But he didn't create the idea, so. Do we give him the credit for that? I mean, there's a lot to give him credit for, but personally, I want to give the whole team credit and I want to find a way to do that. And I, I go into organizations all the time where I see amazing people doing amazing work. Oftentimes, they don't even know they're doing design work because they're just doing their job of making people's experiences better. It doesn't occur to them that's design. Mm. And they should be getting the credit too. 
So when you all were, we were talking about this, this interview and you're also, we're going to ask you this question, think about who your favorite designer is, who influences you most. I'm like, you won't know anybody who influences me because you know, <laughs> they're the people I had a call with 15 minutes ago and the people I had four calls with yesterday. And you know, all these people are influencing me every day. I love that. So then lastly, Jared, where can people keep up with you, your work and center center? Well, our Twitter account, my Twitter account, JM Spool, where I, I tweet about design, design strategy, design education, and the amazing customer service habits of the airline industry. <laughs> I've seen some of those tweets. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Well, hey, Jared, thank you so much again for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation and learned so much. Well, thank you for having this conversation with me and, and helping me tell everybody about the, the cool things we're doing at Center Center. And, and it's an honor to be included amongst uh, the great podcasts. I listen to all your podcasts and, and just to be on the show and, and now to be on it twice. It's, you know, I'm, I'm just honored. Yeah, well, well, we'll definitely have to check back in with you in a few more years and see how things have uh, continued to grow and progress. Excellent. Well, thank you for encouraging my behavior. <laughs> Cheers, Jared. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.